Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the We and Me podcast. Thanks for joining us today. We're very excited to bring a special guest to you for this episode. This is Alexa James. She's the director of NAMI Chicago and who you may have seen us tweeting about recently. Hi, Alexa. Hello. How's it going? It's going. How are you? You know, <laughs> it's one of those days, but we're getting through it. Thanks again for coming on, though, because I think that a lot of people need to know more about NAMI, how they can get help using NAMI, because programs like this are not very reliable in a lot of instances and a lot of people's experience. However, NAMI is a really great one. And as all of our listeners know, we have been um, we have been doing different things moving forward and trying to create a partnership here. Can you share just a little bit about yourself with our listeners? Tell them a little bit about how you came to find NAMI and your motivations for moving up the ranks, I guess, to become the director? Oh, God. Well, I'm a woman, right? So I have a little bit of an imposter syndrome. Like, how am I in this position, <laughs> um, which is such a privilege, truly. Uh, you know, I thought about that recently because I was really looking forward to talking with you and sharing some information with your community. And I thought about how did I get here? And a lot of people have asked me that question. I mean, the truth is, right, I have worked with worked with young people who um, experienced significant trauma. They were words of the state. And I remember thinking to myself, we were over psychiatrically treating them. And I thought, gosh, you know, if I could understand development and trauma and mental health better, I would be a much better clinician and a much better safe adult. So I went back to graduate school. I got a master's degree in child development and social work. And for me, systems are really interesting for me, you know, changing systems, changing the way that people are thinking about healthcare and accessibility and trauma. And social work really gives you that opportunity. I mean, it's clinically based. We're talking about clinical issues, but there's a lot of opportunity for advocacy. So it felt like a really good fit for me. And I accidentally ended, ended up at NAMI, but wow, how lucky I am. Because NAMI is a is a place that supports, in fact, it's, I'll share with you, I, sometimes I feel like we should share, share our mission, uh, change our mission statement because our mission says that we are here to support all people who are impacted by mental health conditions. I think that's every single human. And yeah, I, I think that we need to think about how are we changing the narrative that mental health care, mental health conditions are primary health care. It's not tertiary. It's not secondary. That we're all kind of on a different spectrum, but everybody requires a healthy heart and a healthy mind. Right. And so we really work on making sure that there's capacity for that. Yeah, that's fantastic. We've looked at quite a few things regarding NAMI because as as you know, and I know a few of our listeners do, but we didn't really know much about NAMI until we met you. I myself, I had to I had to Google NAMI. And I'm from Chicago and you guys are in Chicago and I myself had to Google it. And I am someone who had spent a very long time collectively. We spent a very long time trying to find help and I had no idea about NAMI. So I think that's something that is it's really great that you guys are pushing some of these things more and people are finding you more accessible. And I think that there's a lot of good in some of the programs that you guys do. I know that actually I just spoke with Sierra this morning. Some of the work that we're trying to partner in and some of the public speaking and stuff like that. So I think 
I think there's so many different things. And then the high school programs that you guys do, some of the outreach and communities that you do, and then working with the CPD, there's so much good that is going on. And I think people need to recognize that and be hopeful about it that, listen, organizations like this, national organizations, they're, they're listening to you. They're listening to people. They're trying to get in more into the communities. They're trying to find ways to connect and help. Can you share a, a little bit about some of the community programs in Chicago specifically that you guys are doing? Of course. I love that you said that we're hearing people. We are not only hearing people, but we are informed by folks with lived experience, whether they're a family member, an individual with a, you know, some type of substance use or mental health condition or, I mean, whatever, right? Like, we right. are absolutely informed by lived experience, and that's what's guiding us. The backbone of our organization is our helpline. So folks can call our helpline Monday through Friday. We're expanding it to the weekends and, and evenings starting in January. Fantastic. And um, talk to somebody. Talk to a, a clinician. It is not therapy. It's not direct service. It's totally free and confidential. But you can call safely and confidentially and say, this is what I'm looking for. And the truth is, of the 3,500 callers that we have every year, some people don't know what they're looking for. People, sometimes a referral for us is an accessory. Sometimes it's just having like a consistent person that understands the mental health system and can help navigate through. But we know we're not going to get people to call us if people feel ashamed or unsafe reaching out to the mental health community. And so much of our work is based in the community, whether it's making sure that first responders, the fire department, the police department, 911 call takers are trained and trauma-informed. We do a ton of that. We um, do corporate and professional outreach. We increased our outreach by 175% this year. Wow. We we reached over 9,600 high school students to dismantle stigma and increase suicide awareness. And frankly, I mean, kids come up to us after these trainings and say, I had a plan today. I had a plan to take my life. I feel hope now. I didn't even know that there are other people going through this. All of our trainings, all of our outreach always include somebody with lived experience sharing their recovery story. Because as you mentioned, we'd love to partner more with you with with this too, because you are so life-changing. You sharing your story at the CPD, and I know that that was like a really challenging that's a challenging opportunity, Um, but I still hear No, you can say it. It was really hard for us. You can say that. Well, I think that it was hard. I think it was long. I think that it was like a a, a different group. We weren't, it was a one day train. So we didn't have a lot of like intimacy with them. Right. Right. Um, But I still hear about you. I mean, I go to roll call training and they're like, remember that woman? That was so life changing for me. So, so that's, you, you know, you are all, I mean, that's the, the critical change. And so anyways, my long-winded answer is we try to saturate the community with mental health literacy. Yeah. We try to stand up and show up for people so that there's no long, so that we don't add to this correct narrative that the mental health professions are to be trusted. We realize that this is a significant um, experience for people and we push policy agenda so that if folks do bravely say, okay, I'm ready to seek help in a way that feels safe for me, that there's capacity for them and that they're not turned away and told to wait for two years. Right. Yeah. That is a problem I myself have lived experience with. I had only gone to a few doctors while my parts went to dozens. But for me, one thing that I remember hearing was I'm not, you're not in my wheelhouse. And that, that is a very damaging thing for someone to hear because 
Like I myself, I don't get overly emotional about things, but if I'm not in someone's wheelhouse, especially given what I looked up and knew about this doctor that I was seeing, because the internet's a thing, people, I can Google you. Same, same thing for doctors. So if you're talking about how you're trauma-informed and how you have this and this degree, how you're a PhD and all these different things, and you can't help me, why would I bother? Well, how does it make sense that I would bother to continue trying to find somebody else? If you're the very tippy top of the intelligence food chain and you have all these degrees and all of this training and you can't help me, then, well, that's that's the one of the, that's the last doctor I, I myself remember going to because it didn't make sense to me in my brain. There was nothing sensical about continuing. So to the psychologists out there, talk to your local NAMI chapters. Talk to these people that are using the mental the people in the mental health community who have lived experience and figure out how you can help and how you can how you can best work with your patients and how you can give them their best life because that's really what your goal should be. I think that's right. I think that there's not a lot there's very siloed systems and we're not necessarily all participating together and mm-hmm. we are um, partnering really in an antiquated way. Yeah. And I don't know if like the value from, I think the value of a peer voice is much more elevated than it used to be. And the inclusion of peers, people living in recovery, working towards recovery in the healthcare system is also expanding, which is super exciting. And and hopefully it starts changing the education around um, the direct service professionals. Yeah, absolutely. I would agree with that. I think I mean, I, I know that when you and I talk, I always I always tell you some of the, pardon my French, the horrible shit that's going on in your area. But that doesn't mean that there's not positive things going on. That doesn't mean that there aren't people like Brianna Moss, for example. She's a, a local Chicago woman from Inglewood, and she does all sorts of different things in the mental health community. She's an event planner, so she's starting these different events and stuff like that. And I think you and I, after we hop off the recording here, we should discuss that. But she's mm-hmm. she's an amazing woman, and she's doing all these different things. And it's just, sometimes it's hard to be heard, but people are doing positive things in Chicago, for example. We know people in Detroit that are doing positive things in Boston and New York and L.A. and Miami and all of these different major cities as well as some smaller communities. And I think that part of it is really difficult because it's absolutely difficult to do something like this. I live with DID. That's that's one of the tippy-top of stigmatized disorders. I'm not belittling other people's disorders. That's not what I mean. But what I'm saying is, is that... I don't know many people who fear someone who have anxiety. I know that they get rude. I know that people are just awful sometimes, but they don't want to pray for your demon soul and they don't want to kill you. I have had messages like this from people, and I know plenty of people in the DID community who have as well, and that is a massive problem. But there are people out here like Alexa, who's the director of NAMI Chicago, like Brianna Moss, who is in Chicago and working on some of these different things. Uh, Brianna has no full understanding of DID, yet she spoke with me openly. And you know what? It's a risk, but sometimes you have to just kind of leap and talk to people about what you're going through, because if you don't, nothing can change. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That's exactly right. And I and I think that there's something to be said too about the way in which you approach changing the conversation and educating. Being an advocate can be really challenging, I think, right? Because especially, especially as young women. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, because 
we can be seen as whiny or I love how I just call myself a young woman. I'm not, <laughs> I'm almost 35. So I'm just holding on to this. Well, I'm um, 31. So, okay. Well, you're definitely, <laughs> um, but I think that we can, you know, we're, we're criticized for being emotional or passionate or whatever. And so I think that we have to, it's even more challenging to stay at the table and Mm -hmm. it's so critical that you stay at the table in these conversations about changing the stigma, this, this layered stigma specifically for DID, um, in a way that people will hear you. Yeah. Thank you. I try make people hear me in, in a way (laughs) how you just said that is exactly what I, I do attempt to do because I think it's just the way it worked out for me, for my brain, the experiences that I myself had as well as my parts. I think we can just have some of these conversations because, A, because of the DID, because I can separate myself from things, but also just because of the way that I myself think. I don't I don't deal with high degrees of emotion. I just don't experience the world in that way. It's not that I don't love or fear or care or hate or pick an emotion, but I just don't deal with the the high degrees of those things. And I often get lost in the thought over, well, why would I? And then when people point out to me why I would, well, because you have DID, that's probably a pretty frightening thing where it came from all those things. It's like, yeah, but I just don't think about it like that. Because to me, the separation of that, I, you know, when I talk to some people, I tell them, I'm like, you're not my therapist. If you trigger me, that's not your business. It's up to me to handle that and correct the behavior as I can some of these conversations are important to have because despite the difficulty, like you had mentioned when we came and spoke with uh, the CPD officers, that was very difficult and very triggering because we're from the south side of Chicago. And if there's other than doctors, the only other group of people that we trust less than that are the police department. <laughs> so that was, that was up to us, though, and it was worth it to us because these are officers who are are coming to do these things with NAMI because they want to correct the problems. They want to be informed. They want the information that's available to them. And if I can give them that information, I think that is up to me. It's like an, it, it almost is an obligation in a way. Like if, if you're not willing to talk about some of these things, despite the difficulty, the personal difficulty, then you don't really have much room to complain about it. And I know that sounds harsh, but that's just the way I think about it. Yeah, I don't think it sounds harsh. <clears throat> I don't think it sounds harsh. But what I do think, uh, hearing you just now, I love that you just said, you're not my therapist. Right. If you trigger me, that is not on you. That is something that I'm going to negotiate, right? Yeah. I find it remarkable to be around people who take their mental health recovery so seriously because what an advantage you have to have insights such as that most you know i think of getting a diagnosis as a protective factor if you take it if you really work on your recovery because the insight and the emotional intelligence and the attunement that you have with yourself and your parts and the outside world is so much greater than most people have who've never had adversity or never had to really kind of look at that. Um, I just, I really, I find it really remarkable. I'm not sure if this is appropriate, but thank you. <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm not sure it's appropriate what I said. So <laughs> no, you're fine. I get, I, I understand what you're saying. Rather, I comprehend what you're saying. I don't know how much of the, 
I don't I don't ever know what to say to people when they say things like that because to me it just doesn't I I think one of the problems too and just so our listeners understand this because I think this is something people miss a lot so this is going to be like a truth time episode on the We and Me podcast we struggle a lot and I think that people miss that when we do some of these things and the way that we talk and stuff and I think it is up to people within their own communities to make changes and because you're the one with the information I am the one with the information I am the one who has DID I'm the one who lives with DID my parts of course do as well but in a different way and I think that if if I'm not willing to have these conversations then who else is going to because all that's going to happen is another movie comes out that's terrible or somebody else is going to write a book or a psychologist is going to write another book on the clinical aspect of it. I can write about the clinical aspects of DID too. I understand the lobes of the brain. I understand the impacts of trauma. I understand the way PTSD changes the physiology of a person. But that's not going to be really helpful for people when I speak because they can hear that from their peers in the psych field. I think it's great that organizations like NAMI listen to people and use people who have the lived experience of mental illness, whether it be a trauma disorder or schizophrenia or depression, anxiety. I mean, there's there's like several hundred different disorders that have the potential that need people listening. And I think it's great that NAMI is a place that listens. Well, thank you. Thank yeah. you for thank you for being such a big voice. Yes, of yeah. course. I have a big mouth. Good. We need more of it. <laughs> Earlier you had mentioned that I liked the way you put this. You had said that you need to saturate the communities and that's one of the things that NAMI wants to do. Can you explain a little more in depth about any potential after school things that you have going on with NAMI? Like for high school students and stuff? I know you touched on some of the some of the work that NAMI does in schools and the speaking and stuff like that. Is there anything that you guys are affiliated with for high school students beyond that? It's a great question. You know, we're, we're, str- I don't want to say struggling. It's been challenging to engage young people. Yeah. Um, mental health is not like a sexy brand, right? It's not like we're selling sneakers. No. And so although they're very responsive when we provide program to them, Getting them to engage following up from that has been challenging. And what we discovered was, like, a 15-year-old kiddo is not going to call our helpline and say, I need a therapist. Not because they're not brave, not because these kids don't have incredible insight, but because there are challenges with adolescents and a lot of them aren't help-seeking in the way that maybe an adult is. There's complications, right? We're also open during the time that they're in school, you know, da-da-da. So what we discovered was the kids who did want to engage were going home after these trainings and saying to mom and mom or mom and dad or dad or dad or grandma or whoever they lived with, they would say, I saw this training. I'm really struggling. I want a therapist. And they would get things like, I wish you were never born or um, you're fine. Or just shake it off. There's nothing wrong with you. Yeah. So our um, new approach is to bring the same exact education that we're bringing to kids for adults, for their caregivers, 
into the school as well as school administration so that every single person who is getting the same information mm-hmm. is having the same impact on the training. Now, our struggle always with families is the ones who show up are typically not the ones that need it most, right. but it's getting much better. And what we're seeing is an uptake of uptick of kids and their parents calling us jointly, um, which is which is incredibly exciting. So that's what we're doing in high school. We also target certain communities in the city, not because not all of the communities are important, but we wanted to support communities that we thought were rich with engagement, but um, have a dearth of resources. So we did a ton of outreach with partners on the west side of Chicago, Lawndale, Garfield Park, Austin, as well as we're just finishing a partnership collaborative in the greater Roseland community where we've reached, I think, almost 700 people. And these are the credible messengers we talked about. These are people in their communities that are really well-respected and leaned on faith leaders for some, some police, some crossing guards, whatever. And now they can start having this conversation. I mean, I think that this is one of the problems with the mental health system is that it's very sick-based. It's crisis-based, and I find it offensive. And I think that a lot of people do, too. We shouldn't re-traumatize people when they're trying to have access to care. Part of that is to make sure that people have more warning signs and signs and symptoms so that they can access care at a place where they're not in the most critical, acute state of their health condition. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. That That's something, too, that I discuss a lot in the Living with DID talk. So it's great that you guys are doing some of the similar things. Because it's, you're not going to likely see, I mean, if I am in crisis, you're probably not going to notice. It's something that I've written about. It's something that I talk to people about. And yes, I live with DID, but that doesn't mean that there isn't going to be controlled chaos or internal chaos. Like I could be having a full-blown panic attack and all you're going to notice is that I'm sweating. And that's it. That's all you'll notice. If that, because I might not be sweating. It's such a tricky thing sometimes. Can you share a little bit about some of some of the ways other people can get involved? Sure. Yeah, of course. Thank you. Because we get that question pretty regularly, and I send them to their to your website. But mm-hmm. yeah, we've been inundated with volunteer requests, which is very exciting. Um, yeah, we have what well, we we're actually starting to call our volunteer program an ambassador program because some of the opportunities are paid. So it's not totally volunteer, but I mean, there's little things that we need help with some administrative tasks around the office, but really what we really need to build is our speakers bureau. So people who we train to share their story um, and they choose the audience that works best for them. For some folks, they feel really comfortable in a faith-based community. Others do not. Some individuals would like to talk to first responders. Some prefer high school students. And and with high school students, we prefer you to be like a young adult so you're a bit more relatable. So that's a big need, people sharing their recovery story. We also need a lot of support and advocacy. We provide a training called NAMI Smarts, and it teaches you how to share your experience in the system in like 60 seconds with legislators. And legislators really, really would like to hear from people who are impacted and not people like me. Um, So that would also be another opportunity for people to get involved. We really need Spanish speaking support. You could always use help with 
people doing outreach and fundraising and kind of helping to share the word, right? Like I'm Mm going to go do a training tonight for first responder families. If there's a community group that you think would love to have a dialogue or a roundtable conversation, you know, call us and we'll do everything we can to make that available. That's fantastic. Yeah. Thank you for sharing a lot about this because I know, I know that a lot of our listeners ask about this. And some of them I had told we were having you on and they were like, oh, great. Can't wait to listen to that one. So I'm trying to hit all the talking points that people have asked me about personally. I myself, of course, had questions for you, but I wanted Mm -hmm. to make sure that I got theirs answered. I think, too, that a lot of the time people hearing from someone who's doing this, like you, for example, despite the... How did you, I can't remember how you put it. You said something like disbelief that you're in the position you're in, but you're still, you're still a woman in Chicago who is the director of NAMI. That's a big deal to a lot of people. And I think hearing from you helps. Oh, well, thank you. I, I'm uh, very lucky that you asked me to have this conversation with you. Thank you. Yeah, of course. I think it's, well, as you know, and as our listeners probably know, I think conversations are the most important thing you can do. Words, they matter. They certainly do. And that human connection, right? I love Mm -hmm. that we show this three-minute video a lot in training. Um, It's Brene Brown empathy. I think many of us so frequently get afraid that we're going to say the wrong thing. And usually we actually do. Mm -hmm. You know, we further injure so often instead of heal. Um, And sometimes it's by accident and sometimes it's just because we've none of None of us really understand what active listening means. Yeah. But I like the end of the video. She says, you know, what really matters is human connection and authentic like vulnerability. And I think that's right. I think that that's what it means to show up for other people, to just say, I don't even know what to say to you, but I am so glad I'm here with you. Instead of I'm going to solve all of your problems and make you feel very small. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, I, I like that. Yeah. The show up for people and active listening because... Like you said, so many people just, they miss that part of the listening human experience. Mm -hmm. They like listen to reply and that's not Mm -hmm. particularly helpful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. So with community outreach with NAMI, do you guys have any sort of like person to in-person groups or anything like that that meet week to week or in a month, every month or something like that? Yes. Thank you for asking that. So we have three different types of support groups that, uh, that are facilitated by NAMI Chicago. One is a Spanish language group, and actually we um, sh- the group is shared. So it's family members and people they love who are impacted by mental health conditions. And halfway through the session, we break up into different groups. It's just how they wanted to organize it, and it seems to work really well. That's and that's held at our office. We also have another group similar to that on the west side of Chicago at St. Anthony Hospital, where they provide childcare. And that is listed on our website. We have several recovery groups for individuals who are working towards their mental health recovery or not, and just want to come and be amongst people who are um, in the same space. And we have that twice a month at our office at in Ravenswood area in Chicago. We also have one at Mercy Hospital for folks living in recovery, and it's all peer-led, right? So the facilitators are not a clinician. The facilitators are people who have that same experience of the population they're supporting. 
And we also have a family support group at Mercy Hospital as well that meets on Saturdays. So we're trying to grow. And there's two support groups for families on the south side in like the Beverly area. We're trying to grow our support groups. We're trying to find safe spaces for people. Mm -hmm. Some folks really want it to be diagnosis specific, but that has not been the way that we have run our groups historically, but it doesn't mean that we're uh, against doing it that way. That sounds really good, you guys. <laughs> I wasn't sure, but I, I assumed you'd have at least one. Maybe <laughs> <laughs> a few. <laughs> There's a few. That's good, though, because then people can get the support that they need. If they can't come on one day, they can come on the next, or they can meet meet the next week or the next month. Yeah, peer support is a huge, huge thing that can be really beneficial for people. And I've seen that with the trauma community, and a lot of those are online because people can't get somewhere or because there's this this fear of judgment, or the other unfortunate truth is that they just don't have something available to them. Mm -hmm. So I think it's nice Mm -hmm. that there are some of these different types of groups. Not that it's disorder specific. There are recovery groups and that sort of thing. So I think it's important. Yeah, I mean, that idea of kinship, right? That that you can be around people who, it's always going to be a different experience, but that, that know where you're coming from in a way that others won't. Right, because they have the information, the background, the lived experience, but it probably differs a little bit. But that's that's kind of the, I think that actually helps more than it hurts, to be honest, because so, so I mean, there's 10 million plus people in the U.S. who live with DID alone, right? So with it, that's an actual statistic, by the way. With that, though, there's there's all sorts of different online communities. I do know that more and more over the last couple of years, different areas are having peer, peer-to-peer peer support groups for people with dissociative disorders, trauma, uh, DID specifically, though. Some are popping up now, and I think that can be helpful as long as it's done correctly, because then at least you know that someone else that is physically there knows and understands what you're going through and stuff like that. And I think it's, I think it's really great, the peer support groups. I think that they're a big part of the recovery for a lot of people. Yeah, Absolutely. I will say that if people do want to reach out to us, if they're in the city, if they're in the suburbs, if they're in other parts of the country, they certainly can reach out if they're concerned about somebody who lives in Chicago. Our resources are pretty Chicago, Cook County specific, but they can certainly reach out to us at 312-563-0445. Also now, if somebody calls 311 looking for a a mental health resource, they'll be directed straight to our helpline. And if it's easier to remember that our vanity number is 833-NAMI-SHY, that's another way that you can remember and connect with us as well. That's great. Thank you. Yeah. So before we finished up here, though, I wanted to, that was what I was going to ask you, was where can people find NAMI? Where can they connect to NAMI? And do you, so your website, you guys, you've mentioned that a couple times now. Can you, can you share with us the website? And then I have the number now, the one eight three three nami shy So that's our number, one eight three three nami shy Our website is org. There's a list of our support groups on there, our helpline number. There's fact sheets about our programs. You know, we do a lot of other work if people are interested in our job postings, events that we have coming up, and all of staff information should you want to reach out directly to one of us. 
That's fantastic. Yeah, thank you very much. All right, everyone. Thanks again for listening to the We and Me podcast. We had Alexa James with us today, the director of NAMI Chicago. We hope you enjoyed it, and we will see you guys next week. Thanks again, Alexa. Thank you.